Shalom and welcome to Torah to the People, a podcast from Temple Israel in Memphis, Tennessee. I'm Rabbi Micah Greenstein. We hope you enjoy this selection of our sermons, classes, and conversations with inspiring people from across the Bluff City and around the world. Uh, we're so honored to have Josh Scharf here for this session. Um, on uh, as part of this series on how Israel became a state, uh, we we're so we uh, like I said last time. I don't really want to say we take for granted that Israel is a state because of course we don't take for granted. But for those of us who um, were born after 1948, it's always been a part of our reality. And so um, learning how this incredible mir- modern miracle came to be um, is is what Josh is going to walk us through today. So welcome, Josh. Yeah, well, it's great to be back. Um, I'm really excited um, to, to keep moving forward in the material. Um, so last week we uh, covered um, Zionism, the ideology, where it comes from, uh, and its many streams over the course of um, the years. Today we're going to focus in <clears throat> on, uh, rather than talking about one um, ideological movement, we're going to focus on a number of years. We're going to focus on the years from 1881, 1882, 1914, the outbreak of World War I, a time in history that researchers, Israeli historians call the first and second Aliyot, the first Aliyah and the second Aliyah. Don't worry, we'll talk about that in a second. But I just want to start in last week, just a few thoughts on what we spoke about last week, because that'll really set the stage for everything we speak about today. <clears throat> so last week, we started off talking about Zionism, Jewish nationalism that's born into a Europe in which the promises of liberalism, democracy, and opportunity simply didn't reach a huge amount of the Jews of Europe. Um, it was really, uh, I was reading an article this week and, and um, uh, someone summed up Herz, um, Herzlinian uh, Zionism really well. And they said, tolerance is nice, right? This whole model of tolerance that you have us there is, is, is nice, but anything less than self-reliance is immoral. So, um, and so this is the basis of it, right? Where this idea, this promise of tolerance, this promise of opportunity is great, but we need to be self-reliant. Um, and um, amongst all the, na- in Europe, right? The Jew- Jews had a hundred, if not more ideas or ideologies to turn to. So what is it about nationalism, especially, right? The idea of, of existing, of being part of a collective, but then, Beyond just the basic national idea, it's, it's in Europe, you had a lot of options. You could be loyal to your empire. You could be loyal to the people that surrounded you. Uh, but what about our national identity, right? And so Zionism comes as an answer to these questions. Um, we're going to move into uh, history now, all right? So I'm going to share with you a map. Um, from a really wonderful work, work on Israeli history by a uh, uh, historian named Anita Shapira, um, who wrote um, a, a history, uh, Israel, a history, it's called, as you can see at the top here. Um, I lean pretty heavily on her research for, for these, these sessions. It's really well written. I couldn't recommend it more. But I want to speak about this area. And this is Ottoman Palestine. Again, 1881 to 1914, the Ottoman Empire still exists. And this, this piece of land is, is part of the Ottoman Empire. In 1800, Palestine was sparsely populated. There's about a quarter of a million people living all across this area. Um, 
mostly in the cities. Outside of cities, it's a really dangerous place to be, somewhat like, somewhat like the Wild West. And amongst these cities, you really need to live behind a wall to be safe. And amongst these, about 6,500 Jews lived in the holy cities, Jerusalem, Hebron, Sfat, <clears throat> and Tiberias. And, uh, but over the years from 1800 to 1880, um, very briefly in the 1840s, the Ottoman uh, government is overthrown. A new uh, leadership comes in. And what, what this leadership decides to do is to invite Europe into the into the Middle East, which hadn't been the reality before, but all of a sudden in Europe at the same time, there's a huge fascination um, with the Bible. There's a Bible boom across Europe, and of course, the stories of the Bible, which all reference the Holy Land, Palestine, Ottoman Palestine, the land of Israel, pulls Europeans towards it. And so, over the course of 1800 to 1880, there's some infrastructure that has to be built by the Ottomans to uh, to serve uh, the people coming in. Um, uh, for example, in 1869, there's the first paved road ever between Jaffa and Jerusalem. Before that, you just had to carry on your back or you had to be on a pack animal. Now you bring carts. In 1892, the first train. And so from this population of 250,000 in 1800, we're really only get up to about 400,000 by the 1880s. It's, it's, not a, it's, it's not a boom economy. There's not, there's not a lot going on. Basically, everything is about pilgrimage from Europe. Um, right in the 1870s, right before our story begins in earnest today, we're talking about a population of maybe 30,000 Jews, mostly from Europe coming to study, right? Mostly Ashkenazim, mostly ultra-Orthodox, right? Coming to study Torah in the land of Israel, living off of uh, charitable efforts, and again, living in the cities. So, um, I mentioned this event last week, 1881. Uh, the beginning of the Jewish modern era begins with the assassination of the Tsar Alexander II, and in its wake, the wave of pogroms that became known as Sufot Benega, the storms in the south. Um, these pogroms caught especially Jews, but especially Jewish revolutionaries, Jews that had sort of uh, latched on their cause to the revolutionary movements gaining momentum in, in, in Tsarist Russia. The fact that the non-Jewish populations didn't around them didn't rush to their cause, right? The Jews were being attacked, and it seemed, and we now know that there was some involvement of the church, some involvement of the governments, pushing people towards this street of violence against Jews. Um, and, and there was no answer. There was no help. Followed swiftly after, um, in May of 1882, the Russian Empire passes a, a series of laws called the May Laws, and this strictly limits Jewish participation in, in public life, in academia. Um, and, and even the Russian foreign minister at the time said that the whole point of passing these laws is that one third of the Jews in Russia will die, one third will immigrate, and one third will be dissolved, assimilated into greater Russia, right? Really, the whole point of this violence and these laws were to fix, as we called it last week, the Jewish problem. And these pogroms, their violence and their, and their consistency leads the Jews of Russia and many Jews in the rest of Europe to two conclusions. The first is there's a total loss of personal security, right? The, the, my house is no longer a safe place. My community is no longer safe from violence. We cannot be kept, kept safe here. The second um, is that it draws more and more Jews to radical ideas. Now, I know when you hear the word radical, uh, you think something, uh, you know, uh, uh, it has a very negative connotation, but I use the word radical. To compared to the very conservative ideologies of the Russian Empire at the time. This is the Tsarist Empire. 
It's very religious, very uh, steeped in tradition. And so radical ideologies come and test it. Um, and so Jewish answers come, spring up with this. Uh, the Bund, the Jewish Marxist organization. Um, Amolam, a small organization that moves to the United States. And also the Bilu, the Beit Yaakov Yilchu Venelcha. Uh, this is a Zionist organization. The, the house of Jacob will get up and will go. Um, and, and they start to bring uh, Jews to Palestine very slowly. What were we seeking, right? What were the Jews seeking? Again, just a reminder of all national movements was a realization of a new self-esteem. These Jews were, the, we're talking in the 1880s, these Jews had modern education. They'd lived through emancipation in Russia. Many of them had, learned, had become more secularized. Many of them had been exposed to the world, been exposed to ideas of the Enlightenment. And yet um, they were, the promises were not being uh, fulfilled. Um, and, and this movement um, becoming the shift from an idea, the shift of a, of a mystical yearning for the land of Israel, a shift to a physical move. That's the big change that happens uh, in the 1880s. Those events open up what we call in Israeli history the first Aliyah. Right? Aliyah, an individual can make Aliyah, can go up to the land of Israel, can move, a Jew can move to the land of Israel. But in historical terms, we call this first Aliyah as the wave, the people that came. We're talking about the years 1882 to 1904. Um, so for Aliyah is our first vocabulary word. The next vocabulary word that I want to teach you is Yishuv. Yishuv, in English, we'd write it Y-I-S-H-U-V. Yishuv uh, is the, the, the term used to describe the entirety of Jewish settlement in the land of Israel before the state of Israel is founded. So the Jews who came before 1882 were part of what's called the old Yishuv. They're mostly Orthodox living in the holy cities. But we're going to, but the immigrants that will arrive in 1882 will be part of what's called the new Yishuv. You can just already hear it by the, the way the press referred, the Jewish press said old and new, right? There's already a bias in which one we prefer, right? <laughs> old already brings with it some connotation, right? To put against, right? You have old and, and, and new. And so, um, uh, this new this, this new type of immigrants, uh, these these people who were part of the Bilu, um, the Beit Yaakov, or the Chov of Zion, the lovers of Zion, who come uh, to the land of Israel, there's basically two types. One, uh, idealistic, young, um, very well educated, wanting to get up and go to the Jews, wanting to go up and really and and, and bound up this idea of a national ethos. But the second, and the vast majority of immigrants that come during this time, the vast majority of Olim come during this time, are middle-aged, families, more traditional. And driven, yes, by an idea of Zionism, a return to the homeland, but also a mix of personal and ideological factors. But what to do, and so they arrive, we're talking about a group of maybe 40,000 immigrants over these few decades. So it's not a great deal as opposed to the millions of Eastern European Jews that will move to North America. When they arrive there, they face a lot of challenges. The main one, settling the land. What are we going to do once we're here, right? Uh, moving to the cities, there became overcrowding very quickly, especially in the port city of Jaffa, where most of the individuals arrived. Jerusalem by the 1880s was already teeming with people and, and uh, sewage problems and health problems. So the cities were not a great place to live. But also, um, this was not what these new part of the new yeshuv were coming to do. They weren't coming to do what we had done before. They're coming to do something 
something new. They weren't sure what. They're coming to do something new. Um, uh, in settling the land, first they had to be acquired. And this is a big issue. Um, originally, in 1881 and 82, the Ottomans said uh, no Jews coming into Palestine could purchase land. Um, like all good laws, it was made to be broken, uh, but, but uh, there was barriers from the beginning. Um, most cases, they had trouble coming up with capital. They didn't have a lot of personal uh, capital. And just to quote Anita Shapira here, um, when she writes about uh, uh, the land purchases, she writes, quote, in most cases, land purchases involved friction, either with neighboring Arab villages displeased by the border marking of land purchased by the Jews, or with sellers who were dishonest in their dealings with buyers, or with the tenant farmers who the buyers sought to remove from their land. And we'll talk about more of the relationships here, but we can see that already with, with purchasing land, the status quo that's been there for many years on this land is starting to change. And this creates tension uh, with, with uh, the neighbors. Um, uh, in order to overcome these issues, groups of these olim would need to come together uh, and pool their resources in order to buy from either Turkish or Arab effendis, uh, the word for landowner here. Um, what had been promised to many of them that there would be organizational support for them once they got here to purchase land, to settle the land. Um, turns out that didn't uh, always come to pass. Um, in the early 1880s, uh, there's very little capital, there's very little resources. Near the end of the 1880s and 1890s, uh, thankfully, international Jewry steps up, um, specifically the name who you'll recognize here, the Baron Edmund de Rothschild of the famous Rothschild family. Um, takes the uh, number of settlements that were that were um, built in the land of Israel, takes them under his custodianship. Um, a, a second person whose name is a little less known is Baron Hirsch, who also is a European uh, um, uh, philanthrop Jewish, Jewish philanthropist who had been mainly funding settlements for Jews in South America, right? After uh, the Sufot Benegev, the pogroms, Jews start leaving East Europe and they're looking for places to go. Um, some of them go to South America, uh, the roots of the, the descendants of their community still living in South America today. Um, and, but Baron Hirsch also brings these communities under his custodianship. Okay, so uh, I need to introduce you a third uh, uh, vocabulary word here, and that word is Moshava. Before you say, oh, that's a moshav, it's not a moshav, for those of you who have heard that term before. A moshava is a specific type of agricultural settlement that's started by the first aliyah olim. And the big goal, right, the, uh, we'll see in a second that um, the national ethos of Israel really comes about during the second aliyah. But during this first aliyah, they still had big aspirations, right? Uh, they, the, the goal is to create farming communities, agricultural settlements that first and foremost were independent, that they could sustain themselves, right? What, what the, the main goal is to prove that Jews could move to land of Israel, beg your pardon, could create communities and then could be financially independent. Um, uh, uh, they, they could grow their own food. They could feed themselves. They had everything that they needed. Um, most of them did not reach the school, at least until later, right? During, this, during the first, uh, the 80s uh, and 90s and early aughts of the 20th century, 
Most of these communities didn't reach that goal. That's why they were forced to turn to European sources of capital to keep them afloat of custodianship. And the problem with giving custodianship to someone else means that you no longer, the internal set the rules for your own community. So there's another power coming in and telling you what to do. Um, and they, and especially Rothschild, uh, uh, Hirsch less, but um, Rothschild really took control of the operations within the settlements, makes all these changes that the settlers aren't really big fans of, uh, but they don't have any other uh, alternative. So over the course of, 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 of three years, and I, I went through the first alley very quickly because I want to spend my last 40 minutes, the majority of our time here, talking about the second alley because this will really be where um, uh, the, the national ethos of what we know today as Israel is born. But I just want to say a few, take a, uh, present a couple of big takeaways from the first Aliyah. First of all, actually, I'd like to show you a photo of the uh, Olim of the first Aliyah. And I know the picture quality is not great. These are photos of photos that have been up uploaded to the internet. So I brought uh, the best I could find. But even just in generalities, we can see the dress. It's <laughs> It's it's un, it's unbelievably European, right? Even the even the workers on the right have the the hats that we would you know uh, equate with Eastern Europe. On the left, you know the men gentlemen dressed in their suits. And trust me, I've been in the northern part of this country in the summer at the heat of the humidity, and they were not having a great time dressed in this manner. Uh, you can trust me uh, there. But even these two images can really show us a lot about again, the ethos of, of who these people were, right? That they, that they uh, came to work to be part of the land, but Europe very much came with them, right? In this, in this dream, this, this, the few of them that were ideologically uh, motivated that came to try to build something new, understood pretty quickly in those early years that the vision, the, rea the dream, didn't match up with the reality that was waiting for them on the ground. So the first Aliyah, big dreams, right? But the challenges that they meet in uh, Ottoman Palestine, they're not able to overcome uh, in order to achieve those dreams. Out of the between 40 and 50,000 Olim that come in these decades, only about half stay. It's a pretty miserable retention rate on any project, right? If you manage to bring 50,000 people into something and then 25,000 were gone, within, you know, 10 or 15 years, uh, you know, and we all measure success differently. But, they, and they didn't leave because they didn't care or they didn't want to be here. They left because it was hard, right? They, they left and who knows, they had a brother or a cousin or, or a distant relative or a former business partner that moved to Chicago or Memphis or Miami and wrote a letter and it said, listen, Shmulek, this is the golden of Medina, right? There's something better elsewhere. And so the people who stayed, um, it's a pretty remarkable uh, story. Very, as I mentioned, the, 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 big, uh, uh, the big complication is that uh, it was uh, around financing, around infrastructure, around organization. And the goal of becoming independent never came to pass. And that will motivate the Olim of the Second Aliyah in an incredibly uh, deep way. And while it may seem that I'm just sort of throwing out failures of the first Aliyah, because listen, I, you know, we look back sort of and we would say, okay, it was, it was hard. It maybe didn't come together exactly uh, the way we thought it would. Without the enterprise, 
of this first wave of immigrants without the truly the blood, sweat, and tears of their labor. Israel, the shuv at all in Israel wouldn't have developed the way it did, right? The 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 olim that stayed, let's call them in their Hebrew name, the chalutzim, the pioneers that stayed and came here and sweat and built and 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 uh, and built the society. Um, uh, deserve our respect and uh, without them uh, it doesn't come into uh, vogue, uh, into focus uh, the issue of in Israel the way that it did historically. Okay, so that's the first Aliyah. I just want to stop there for a minute and before I move into the second Aliyah and, and the, the rest of the session I just want to ask, are there any questions? Can I, uh, can I clear anything up? Are there any terms? Anything not required but I just wanted to stop at any time, please feel to write a question in the chat. Ben, yeah, your hands up. Go ahead. May I suggest that you give the list of the first Moshevot, like Rosh Pina, Gedera, uh, Petach Tikva, Rishon Litzion, yeah. and so forth. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So as, as Uzi brought up, right, some of these Moshevot in the first uh, wave of Aliyah are, are things that you are places that perhaps you've either been to or heard of today. And beyond the, the names themselves, uh, or really from the names themselves, you, you can connect yourself to the idealism and the dreams, right? Petach Tikva, right? The opening of hope, right? The beginning of hope. Rishon Letzion, the first to Zion, right? We were the first to be here. Zichon uh, Yaakov, I believe, uh, is named after... Uh, oh, after Rothschild, yeah, yeah. After a brother of either after Rothschild himself or a, or a relative, Rosh right? Pina. Right, Pina, right. The foundation stone, right. The cornerstone, absolutely. So, um, even in the naming of these places, you really see the the idealism really come through. And even though perhaps the the execution was not that that would uh, build up to what becomes Israel, uh, their their foothold in the country sets the stage for what's to come. Ben, you had your hand up. Yeah, um, I, I, sus I don't know if this question will be answered, uh, you know, in the next 30 minutes. I suspect it might be so. But um, I'm, I'm really fascinated with the notion that you had sort of, um, uh, well, I guess my question is what, uh, you kind of hinted that there was conflict with the yeah. old and the new, essentially new people coming in and, and, and yeah. sort of with their European uh, perspectives. Um, what what sort of bound them together, I think, is my question, because there had to have been something to to, you know, say, OK, well, we're going to we're going to let these, you know, these folks in. Um, mm -hmm. I guess that that's. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's an excellent question. Um, I would um, I would I, I, while there's some overlap. Right. Some of the Olim from uh, that are part of the new Yishuv join the old Yishuv. And some of the people that are part of the old issue see what's going on in the new and say, we want to be a part there. We could even ask that question today and talk about the ethos of Israeli society that's born out of the Olim of the first uh, Aliyah. And then place that next to the, the mainly ultra-Orthodox communities that lived internally, that governed internally. And we see that a similar, again, it's not the same, but we see a similar question today of, of um, uh, this, this same sort of tension um, where um, secularized uh, Israeli general society and ultra-Orthodox society, they exist together, right? They exist in the same place, but they don't, they don't march to the beat of the same drum many times. 
Um, and so uh, it's a great question. Um, where did they overlap? Um, in, in a lot of places, um, but they also the the, the um, tensions between them, uh, religious versus not religious, um, uh, you know, radical ideas like individual liberty or Marxism versus Torah learning, Torah study, right? Um, so we still have those, but it's a great question. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit more because because then there'll be sort of two layers of tension, the old issue versus the new issue, and also the immigrants of the second Aliyah who have as much beef with the immigrants of the first Aliyah as they do with the old issue. Ron, you had your hand up. A similarity of the, the Hebrew word, Yishuv and Eruv, are they coming from the same community root? Uh, no. No. Le'arev, um, Eruv is with an Ale, Ayn, Reish, Vav, and Yishuv comes from Liashev, it comes to settle. The Yishuv comes from the Hebrew word settlements, where Eruv comes from the, it's the Hebrew words to mean the um, religious marking around, or a barrier uh, in which certain mitzvot can be uh, followed or not. Yeah. Um, okay, again, please, questions. This is great. It's always nice to know what's on your mind. So please type them in or raise your hand or, or just uh, interrupt me. Uh, I'm, as I said, I live in Israel. I'm, I'm quite used to being interrupted. So um, uh, we'll move into the second aliyah. And I say that with a lot of love. Uh, it's uh, it's uh, uh, something that you, you uh, my, my, my Midwesterness uh, had to learn to, to live with, but it does so very happily now. So we spoke about the first aliyah from 1882 to 1903. And of course, these are just, these are terms that historians use to describe uh, these, uh, these movements later. We're going to move into the second Aliyah. And the second Aliyah is uh, considered the years 1904 uh, to 1914, this decade before the outbreak of World War I. And what, what separates them? Okay, so, so generally, it's a, the second Aliyah is very similar uh, demographically to the first. Somewhere between 30 and 50,000 Olim, 35 to 50, depending on who, uh, which, which uh, experts are asking. Um, families looking to better their lives, um, steeped in tradition, um, uh, all that. But um, there's another part. Uh, this, there's a small piece of this, maybe called 10%, 15% of this Aliyah that is going, that is an entirely different breed. And it's going to be this group of mainly young people who uh, help shape uh, the national consciousness of what becomes uh, the Jewish state of Israel. So first, why, why do we call this second aliyah first of all because we see a difference in who arrives but secondly because events abroad have in circumstances abroad have changed and so we need to jump quickly back to russia um between 1881 and 1914 in russia so the years of the first aliyah and second aliyah in russia um generally urbanization and radicalization are the two uh, um under undercurrent events that are happening in russia People are moving into the big cities or the regional cities, and people are becoming secularized. Also Russians, uh, ethnic Russians, but also ethnic Jews are becoming ever more secularized um, uh, and radicalized into different sorts of, sorts of movements. Um, um, in Marxism, right? Other brands of socialism, and of course, nationalism, right? Russian nationalism, uh, Jewish Bundes nationalism that exists in Russia, and, and also uh, uh, Zionism. 1903 also has another event. It's called the Kishnev Pogrom in 1903. 
Um, it's if I'm not mistaken, it's the single most deadly pogrom in the history of uh, anti-Jewish violence in Tsarist Russia. Um, and it is it's it's um, the 1881 pogroms didn't make international news, but 1903 is on that. It's in the headlines of American newspapers. It's such a horrific tragedy, slaughter of blood in the streets, just really horrific stuff. Um, and, 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 and then two years later, the violence that broke out following the first Russian revolution in 1905, more and more young Jews are, are pushed towards radical movements, whether it's a change in the leadership in Russia or whether it's a turn uh, uh, to, to, to Zionism. These movements, all of them, combined the promise of a better future Right. Because their future looks so bleak. They, 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 they gravitated towards movements that promised them a better individual and collective future. And then Zionism also offered uh, this, this seed of national yearning, right? That safety and prosperity and, and a better future comes in the form of a national home for the Jewish people. These young people, these, these, these young people who are radicalized, these are dedicated followers of what we learned last week is um, uh, labor Zionism. You could also call it socialist Zionism. As opposed to the family and steeped in tradition that were coming, these were, they were young, they were single. They show up to Ottoman Palestine on their own. They don't, they don't, they don't want anyone's help, right? They're not looking for charitable handouts. They only have one dream to work the land in the land of Israel, to be workers in the land of Israel. Um, and this is reflected by the first political party they found in 1906. It's called Poale Zion, the workers of Zion, which uh, I'm sure uh, you, you all guessed. This is the, this is the goal, right? This is, we want to be workers in the land of, um, uh, uh, in the land of Israel. And as uh, Ben, you asked earlier, this is where the conflict with the first Aliyah breaks out with the, conflict of the second Aliyah, okay? These, they see the first Aliyah, many of them have become landowners, right? Places like Petach Tikva and Rishon Etzion, they own orange groves or citrus groves, they have employees, some Jewish, some not Jewish. This, this class, it's steeped in Marxist ideology, looks at those, uh, of the first Aliyah, and says, you all are classists, you all are the bourgeoisie, you all have, have created an, you all are not following uh, um, the ideology, you're not following the blueprint to build, right? The society as we see it fit to be built, right? They, they sought no possessions. They dreamed of owning nothing. All they wanted to do was come and work the land, right? The, 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 the battle cry of workers um, uh, movements since the French revolution and specifically of Russian workers movements has been the land for its workers. And that was their battle cry, the land for its workers. And it, it pushed um, these olim, so these young single olim of the, um, of the, uh, uh, of the second Aliyah um, to push, they, they wanted to break out of the patterns that had been developed in the first Aliyah, right? That Jews may be on the land, but Jews aren't working the land. They don't want it to be a, a landowner and worker relationship. They want, as we talked about, the inverted triangle, right? Where Jews will keep up every part of, uh, of the economy and, and the society they're hoping to build. Um, we can really sum this up uh, in uh, um, 
uh, uh, we can sum up the ideology of the second Aliyah um, with uh, in three ideas. Okay, they're in Hebrew, and I'll break them down. Uh, the first is Avodah Ivrit. Avodah Ivrit. It means Hebrew labor. Safa Ivrit. It means Hebrew language. And the third is Shmira Ivrit. And that means Hebrew defense. The, the second, the second Aliyah, these, these Olim, right, saw self-sufficiently that more than just independence that the first Aliyah uh, aspired to. They saw self-sufficiently, self-sufficiency and independence uh, and, and Jewish participation at every single level of the society and the economy is as uh, essential to building a just society, uh, to building a, uh, a correct society. Um, and last time we, we talked about a text written by a man named jo- Joseph Trumpeldorfer said, um, uh, we could sum where we summed it up as I am that wheel, whatever, whatever the nation needs, right? We, uh, the, I, I is nothing, right? I is, is a, is a canceled word, right? In, in the terms from our, using terms from our times for, for, for historical days, it's about we. It's about the nation. It's about the collective. The individual is, is meaningless, right? And so these people and these Olim behave in this manner. Um, the wave starts in 1903, 1904. These young people are moving to the land of Israel, and, and they find themselves many times wandering the land, right, looking for work. We're wanting to be hired by one of these Jewish farms, but they didn't always have labor. Uh, many times the local Arab labor came cheaper. Many times hiring a Jewish worker, especially a Jewish worker that was so ideologically driven and had a lot of ideas about how your farm should be run, wasn't always a, a good choice for a landowner, right? They, you don't want the person that's going to come to you at their afternoon break and tell you you're doing the whole thing wrong. Um, and, and, and so we have, and so it developed where there's this group of young people, passionate, motivated dreaming of nationhood of becoming something greater yet they don't they have nothing to do right and so 1909 becomes a landmark year uh, because they start to organize um two things happen in 1909 during the the second aliyah that that really uh um transforms uh what what israel will be first of all some photos from the second aliyah okay so while we can see again, uh, there's we still see Europe, we still see the diaspora of these individuals, right? You can see that amongst their numbers, youth is very, very clear here, right? Um, men and women mixed together, which we didn't see in that first aliyah, where men would be working, uh, they would be working in the fields, women would be attending uh, the household. But here, in, in socialism, there is no such uh, division of labor. Any job that men can do, women can do, uh, maybe even better, right? And so we see this 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 um, this shift, this generational shift, even in these photos, right? There are no like no more hats, right? No more no more hats of of Europe, right? We're starting they, more and more. Um, they're trying to shape themselves to be part of of their new uh, uh, reality. Um, as I mentioned, nineteen oh nine is a transformative year uh, for two reasons. All right, we'll start on the right, okay. So in 1909, um, the second Aliyah workers, these these Harutzim, these pioneers, find themselves uh, in a dilemma. They have no capital, 
right? They cannot purchase or buy any land. Um, and they utterly reject any sort of charitable efforts to help them. So not only have, do you have nothing, you accept help from no one. Uh, it's an interesting model for success in my book, but these individuals were convinced that this, they had uh, the answer. And, and uh, the answer and the motivation to build what would become the Jewish nation. Um, the answer to this dilemma, this answer to this group of young people who wanted to work, who wanted to be part of the land, uh, comes in the form of, um, through the Jewish National Fund, the JNF, that had just been founded the year before in 1908. Um, and it started purchasing land from uh, landowners that would sell, is that they agreed that they would lease nationally owned land to the workers. And this overcame the idea of charity because now you're not taking charity from anyone. No, you're now participating in the national efforts. Right? You, now, you are now an active participant in the dream of building a Jewish nation. By organizing workers in this manner, right, to lease, to lease them the land, to give them the land to do as they see fit with it, um, also creates uh, a, a protection in the society, right? With these are the people that have a stake in it. These are the people that work the land, that build on the land, that sow the land, that, that uh, um, cut the crops. And so there's protection uh, to keep uh, society intact. This brings us to the birth of, at first, what's called the first kvutsa. But that name goes out and becomes replaced by a name that you all know uh, as the kibbutz. And in 1909, right, the first kibbutz is founded. Uh, it's called Diganya. It's on the shores of the um, uh, Sea of Galilee. Uh, and it's the first in a series, right? Many of them still exist today in a different form, but they're still here on the ground. It's the first uh, attempt in Jewish collective uh socialist living and it's fascinating it's an incredible uh story and it's and it's utterly unique to israel right the kibbutz is an israeli phenomenon it doesn't happen anywhere else um and if we had hours and hours we could go deep into what this means but um the kibbutz would would um um do a couple of things first of all it would uh especially pre-state it would create the economic independence of these agriculture communities that many of the, the first Aliyah took decades to achieve. The second is that as these um, settlements get uh, spread out um, in the area of the Galilee, um, and it, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about maps next week, um, it, the, you can start to see the shape of what eventually becomes the state of Israel uh, um, taking form as more of these agricultural communities are founded, especially around the Northern part of the country. Um, and so the birth of the kibbutz happens in 1909. And, and this will give, this, the kibbutz will give birth to the first elite of Israeli society, the pioneers, the kibbutznikim, the chalutzim, the beautiful Jews that are tanned, wearing khaki uniforms, working the land. And this, this becomes the first, uh, uh, they become the first elite uh, of, of pre-state society. Um, they are held up as the ideal of what the society needs. Physical, uh, working, connected to the land, Hebrew speaking. Um, the kibbutz becomes an incredibly important part of, uh, of what becomes Israel. The second event is on the left side of your screen. And this is the poll, or this is the, this is the lottery drawing 
of the uh, 60-odd families that came together in 1909 on the beaches north of Jaffa to uh, decide which plots each would get in the new Jewish uh, uh, Hebrew-speaking city called Ahuzat Bait. Now, you may be asking me, I don't know any city named Ahuzat Bait. You might know it by its name today, Tel Aviv. All right. Tel Aviv uh, is founded in 1909. And if the, if, the, if the kibbutz is the child of labor Zionism, then Tel Aviv is the child of political and cultural Zionism. The dream of the city to be a Hebrew-speaking hub, uh, 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 um, uh, 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 a hub of Jewish culture, of education, of thought, of art. And um, even uh, now we're, uh, you know, 100, more than 100 years into the future, and we can look back and we can see that both of the kibbutz and Tel Aviv, right, the, 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 the rural and the urban, both of these are absolutely key to creating what becomes Israel today. There is no Israel as we know it today without the kibbutz movement and without the foundation of uh, Tel Aviv. Um, just to say a quick note about Tel Aviv, um, the name is... Uh, um, as Rabbi Jeff uh, just uh, prompted me to do, I'm glad we're on the same wavelength. The name Tel Aviv is um, inspired by Theodore Herzl. Um, Herzl dies in 1904, um, after spending the last decade of his life trying to build the global Zionist movement. Um, at the first Zionist Congress, he says, today I founded a Jewish state. It was, you know, it was a bit of a braggadocious claim, but uh, look, it worked out in the end, so all's well that ends well. Um, Herzl, we spent last week in 1896, writes the pamphlet um, Der Judenstaat, the Jewish state. In 1902, he publishes his second um, pamphlet that's called Alt Neu Land, meaning old, new land. This is his vision, right? Taking something that's old and that's ancient, the, the book, the Hebrews, right? Our ancient homeland, turning something new into something modern. Um, it's, uh, it's very um, sort of... Um, uh, her thick uh, European reading from the early 20th century. Uh, read it at some point if you can. But the name of Tel Aviv is the Hebrew translation of Alt Neuland. Tel, a tel is an agricultural, is a, excuse me, an architectural phenomenon of a hill that's been created by layers of civilization uh, being built on one another. The tel meaning the old, the alt, right? And Aviv is spring, birth, newness. That's the new. So Tel Aviv, Alt Noi, and that's uh, that's the inspiration for the name. Um, and so uh, you can see that uh, it, again, it's, that all this is steeped with deep, deep meaning for for these olim who are coming and doing all these things now during, especially during the second aliyah, with great. Uh, um, uh, um, sorry, the the word just uh, um, great conviction and great intentionality to build towards uh, a national project. Um, again, second Aliyah has a, a pretty tough retention rate, not quite the 50% that we lost during the first, but uh, it's, it's, it's tough going. Um, uh, that said, these, these, especially the youth, right? Uh, the ones who end up on the agricultural, the kibbutzim, uh, the moshavim that will come. Um, but then also those that are only there for a short time, people like David Ben-Gurion, who will only be a worker in the, in, in, uh, for about a year. And then we'll move into the city and get involved in politics and in, in Zionist party politics. Or people like Burl Katzenelson, who will be uh, essential to shaping the ethos of the labor Zionist movement. But he himself is, is um, uh, not physically gifted enough to pass the uh, entrance exam to the kibbutz. 
um, uh, it was, uh, um, uh, I, should, I forgot to say this earlier, but, but uh, just to say that the, the lifestyle in the kibbutz is brutal. It's a really difficult life. You work from sunup to sundown, six days a week, Shabbat, you have off, right? That's for culture. That's for your mind. That's for your spirit. Um, but every other day you work and everyone works. There's no such thing as someone that's there. There's no such thing as freeloading. Everyone is, is, is um, contributing. So while the, this is the ideal, this is what's held up by the, the, by the issue for the time of the workers, not everyone is, is capable of doing it, right? Uh, there's never more at any one given time more than 10% of the Israeli, the issue or Israeli society that's represented by members of the kibbutz movement. It's a relatively small part of the society, but it's incredibly impactful ideologically, um, culturally, um, and all that. So um, that's the first and second aliyah. Last 15 minutes, we're going to talk about Jews and their neighbors, uh, the, the building this uh, 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 new national consciousness. Any questions at this point? just wanted to stop and take a breath and see if I can clear anything up, because I know uh, it's a lot, but uh, you will pay good money, and I want to – yeah, Ben, please. Yeah, I just wanted to, I just want to make sure I, I understand this correctly, because this is kind of how I'm, I'm interpreting it. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm seeing that the first had more of an ideal, like a utopian bend towards it, mm. but wasn't necessarily uh, pragmatic in how it was being addressed. Mm-hmm. And I'm seeing sort of the second as kind of rejecting that utopian view in more of a pragmatic individualism that kind of had that sort of burgeoning nationalistic sense or cultural sense, mm. but it was still pragmatic and it rejected sort of that utopian view. And, and I don't know if this is exactly correct, but I'm kind of seeing almost like a syncretism it, starting in 1909 between the two of establishing mm. a utopia, like this, this, having this like utopian view that's kind of tempered by work. Like we actually yeah. have to do this. I don't know if that's a fair, how I'm saying um, it. So, yeah, so I see, I, I see how you've gotten there. I, I, I don't, so I think um, um, Zionism itself is, um, uh, is, an, is an aspirational idea. And it's sometimes, especially if you read Herzl, is utopian, right? His all, Neuland is all based on utopian. There definitely is um, a pre-World War I, um, you know, sort of the, you know, the belly puck, the, the age of innocence, right, before the two great wars. Uh, and, and there is, um, there is the sense of, um, for, for Herzl, you know, inevitability that, that the Jewish state will rise. Um, and I think the Olim, remember, he's not writing the 1890s, uh, the Olim of the 1880s and 1890s, um, I don't think that's that they, they were so, um, idealistic that they didn't, that they couldn't see what was right in front of them. I just think that, um, uh, not enough time had passed from the time someone said, Hey, maybe this is a good idea. To somebody to say like, okay, how do we do it? I think many of these people showed up thinking, uh, and I think a lot of promises were made organizationally um, uh, along the way that that um, sort of uh, affected these people's experience when they got here. But what I think uh, the second uh, Aliyah did that the first uh, didn't or maybe couldn't is that um, they infect uh, the Yishuv with uh, an urgency, with direction, um, and with values, um, that it's not that, you know, it was idealistic. We weren't going to have to work. It was that it's, it, this is, we belong here. And so we need to be one with this place. Um, 
And the only way to do that was through the labor of their hands. So um, I think, I think uh, pragmatism, like, uh, you know, romanticism and pragmatism are always in conflict when it comes to national ideas, especially in the specific and the unique circumstances of Israel, where um, the national idea and the national vision isn't located underneath the feet of those dreaming about it. Um, and so in the first Aliyah, they came and they saw that maybe we're not quite where we thought we were. But the second Aliyah said, who cares? doesn't matter. So what? We don't have anything. We don't need anything. We'll build it. I'll be it. Right? So we don't have farms? Fine. I'll, I'm, we're a farm now. Right? We don't have police? I'm a police. Right? You, we don't have defense? I'll be it. So uh, I hope that cleared up a little bit. Um, Judy, uh, I saw you put your hand up too. And then Carolyn, yeah. I, I have a couple of questions. So you're saying that Tel Aviv, when it was founded, it was a, a group of people each controlling their own plot of land. Mm-hmm. Yep. Was yep. there a government as such? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. There was. It was a local uh, council. Um, these were these were small D Democrats, right? These they were they believed in um, uh, they believed in. Um, Small liberalism, right? Freedom of speech and freedom of of, of, of all that stuff. But also, um, there were committees that that got all the work done. Eventually, there comes to be a system of like a mayoral system, but I can't say exactly what year that developed in. My second question but, is about yeah. uh, on the kibbutzim. Um, mm-hmm. So everybody works. How did he? What happened when someone uh, got older? Were they taken care of by the kibbutzim? So, yeah, it's a great question. So as people aged, right, that it was interesting because the people who found them, right, are all young. And so many of them, they don't, they don't face this until years later. So the people that have been members there their whole life, yes, are allowed to grow old in the kibbutzim and all that. Um, but there were people, you know, in their 30s and 40s, certainly not old, but that wanted to join from outside. And they weren't able to, to hold up against the physical trials of, of joining would be. Um, uh, it um, it, it really was an idea of the young for the young and amongst the challenges they faced, not just once they reached old age, it was also um, how to raise the children in a collective society. And that would create all sorts of uh, interesting um, experimentation in parenting and collective parenting. And um, um, yeah. Thank you. Um, Caroline, I saw your hand next. You need to uh, hold on. You, you got to agree to unmute yourself. Okay, there we go. Were the majority of these early settlers Russian, or was it like mm-hmm. a blend of Eastern Europe? Okay. Um, yeah. So I want to uh, just uh, just to, to be a bit of a, a vocabulary pedant here. We're not talking about Israelis yet, right? These are still just these are Jews that are coming to uh, Ottoman Palestine, and but. They today they would be split between the nations of you know Poland, Ukraine, Belarus, Russia. But what then was all czarist Russia. So they they you know uh, perhaps most of them Yiddish speakers at home. Um, if they spoke another language, it was probably the lingua franca around them, so they could do uh, business. Or if you had moved to a city or you'd been educated, you knew Russian. Um, but uh, the um, uh, but that that yes, those are the majority. Mm-hmm. Uh, Uzi, 
I just wanted to make a comment that uh, I think that one of the difficulties for many people in the kibbutz or in the kibbutzim was not the hard work, but rather the collective life. Mm-hmm. You know, yep. many, many that left, that was the avant-garde at the time, you know. That's one thing. And the second thing, the whole philosophy at the time there of the kibbutz is that uh, you provide to your ability and you received for your your need. Mm-hmm. The third comment also is behind all this movement or the labor movement was also was not only to create a new uh, society, but also to take the Gola out of the Jews. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. So mm-hmm. anyway, no, and I'm glad you I'm glad you said that to take the diaspora out of the Jews. Um, I'm glad you said it because that's exactly what we're going to go to for the last maybe oh, 10 okay, minutes here. Okay. Yeah, because yeah, yeah, yeah. we want to, because, yeah, yeah. No, but, but you brought me there perfectly, so thank you. Um, uh, just one, uh, I'm not going to spend as much time as I wanted to here, but just a quick comment um, because it was brought up earlier. The relationship between Jews and their neighbors during these years from the 1880s to the 1914. Um, uh, Palestine itself under the Turks was broken up into a lot of, uh, into a few different districts. Um uh, during the first and second Aliyot, um, uh, while Jewish nationalism was on the up and up, there's very little organized Arab nationalism yet, right? Uh, at the end, we'll, we'll tell a different story next week after World War I. But uh, these years, there's not a lot of organized uh, Arab ideas of building a nation there. So what would it look like? Um, um, and, and, and during the same time, not only was there not a great Arab national movement, there was also the first, the, the Yishuv didn't offer much of a threat to the Arabs locally. There weren't enough, there weren't enough people, there weren't enough settlements. There's no threat uh, to, to, uh, of a power imbalance here. That said, it also offered the Arabs nothing, right? Because the ethos of the second Aliyah that says uh, Hebrew labor means that Jews need to be working these places, right? We need to build a Jewish society. Um, the disputes that did break out between neighbors were, were just that neighborly disputes, water, borders, uh, my herd, your herd, grazing rights. Um, that said, inside of the uh, ethos of the second Aliyah, there is a Hebrew defense organization started. It's called Hashomer. Um, I just want to mention them very briefly. Um, I think I have a picture here on the right. All right, this is Hashomer. You can see them on their horses with uh, their, they've, they've adopted Middle Eastern dress. And uh, it's less significant that Hashomer, oh, excuse me, existed. Uh, well, excuse me. Less significant for us is what Hashomer did. More significant is that it, it's that um, just like the first Aliyah set the stage for the second, Hashomer, as a Jewish defense organization, will set the stage for the Haganah, and then uh, the Haganah will turn into the IDF, uh, the Israeli Defense Forces, in uh, the 40s. Okay, that's just on really on one foot about the relationship. This is what I want to talk about. This is the last thing we'll speak about today. The creation of a national national culture. Because it's not just enough that all these people are coming here and we're building a city or building agricultural settlements. What, what, uh, we, there needs to be more than that. There needs to be a fabric connecting society. Most academics, when they talk about building a culture, uh, especially a national culture, they, they describe it as a planned construction, something that, that has been pre-designed. Um, it's not the case for Zionism in the issue. It's certainly not um, pre-designed. Um, uh, oh, sorry. I think I just uh, clicked on someone's uh, mute. I apologize. Um, it, the Zionism in the issue, the, the national ethos that's created, 
It's a fusion of contemporary blueprints, mainly by people who have been inspired by nationalism in Europe. They bring their ideas and everything to this new place and try to implement them. Um, the creation of this natural culture, we even talked about it last time very briefly, is that the creation of Israeli, of Jewish national culture already starts in the diaspora during the Haskalah, during the Jewish enlightenment. Um, there's a huge move to start writing in Hebrew, but not only creating new works in Hebrew, also translating the great works of the world, your Shakespeare's, your Tolstoy's, and all the other things that have been written a long time ago that I don't want to throw out names because I'll embarrass myself uh, when I forget someone, but they're translated to Hebrew and people read them. And so there's this incredible exposure to global ideas at a wide scale amongst Jews for the first time. And this starts, again, in Europe. So how does it happen, right? How, do, how does this uh, society be built? The first thing, the first uh, um, uh, um, uh, effect that has a great uh, influence here is secularization. I brought up the word once already, but what does that mean? Secularization means very simply moving away from traditional religious life into secular life, okay? Into, into uh, life that's not uh, determined by religious law. Um, even during the first Aliyah, the, the immigrants that came that were more traditional, more orthodox, by the second and third generation, many of their kids and grandkids had left uh, organized Judaism. Um, something about rural life pulled them away from the Torah. You know, it's hard to say, but in this gap, as they left religion, something needed to fill this gap to give them identity, to give them culture. And what stepped in, what filled the gap was Hebrew culture, right? What we'll call today Israeli culture, but Hebrew culture. In the second Aliyah, these young people grew up in traditional homes, but they'd been away from their parents for so long. They'd left their home for one reason or another. And um, uh, this is this is what Shai Agnon, one of the most famous Israeli writers and a writer of the second Aliyah, this is how he describes um, the relationship um, of these olim with with um, with tradition, with God, with 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 religion, with Judaism. Rabinovich, just the name of a random ole, a random one of the olim. Rabinovich has nothing to do with his creator, and nothing against his creator. Ever since the day Rabinovich left his hometown. It's doubtful that he remembered him. Many of the issues a person has to deal with, and he hasn't got time to remember everything. That's how Agnon described the relationship with God and with religion of the Olim Second Aliyah. Um, very quickly, um, because I see that our time is coming to an end, I want to respect uh, people's, uh, I don't want to keep us as long as I did last time. Um, there, uh, what is created is, is uh, in the terms of the time, is the new Jew, Hayudia Hadash, the new Jew. What we want to do is we want to take a Jew from the diaspora, we want to move him or her to the land of Israel, and we want to create something new. We want to get rid of all those trappings of diaspora, the dress, the language, the food, uh, the customs, and we want to make him a Jew of the land of Israel. Uh, the two fingers of the time, the two models that fuse together to make up what we know as secular Israeli society, is there's one school led by Ahad Ha'am that we spoke of last week, whose influence, whose, whose quote that guides him is not by, uh, not by might and not by power, but by spirit alone. Ahad Ha'am believed in, the, in that Jewish history was a story of a people whose nature valued moral and spiritual force rather than physical. His hero was Yochanan ben Zakkai, the rabbi that fled uh, besieged Jerusalem, ran to Yavne to start a new society after the Romans destroyed the temple. And that's one side, the spiritual Judaism, this 
thinking Judaism, this this Judaism of of, of emotion. Um, uh, and the other is uh, ran by a name by Yosef uh, Michal Berdachevsky, and his ideas, on the other hand, are um, is that we've suppressed it, our national will, that our national will actually is one to use force and our strength and our physicality. And his heroes weren't the Rabbi uh, Ben Zakai. His heroes were Samson and the Maccabees and uh, Joshua and Saul. These heroes, these warriors of the Bible, and these two ethoses are brought together and fused most significantly because they both agreed that the Hebrew language would be used as the, lang- as the spoken language of the Jews. They both agreed that the national ethos of the Jewish people demanded the Jewish language, and that was Hebrew. Um, I don't think it's overemphasizing uh, that when I say the most impressive thing that the Zionist movement ever did, which I guess, you know, we have to give it to building a state, but a close second, if not a first, is the revamping of the Hebrew language as a modern spoken language today. Um, can't, again, can't take it for granted, as Rabbi Dreyfus said at the beginning, uh, especially um, Hebrew as a language, not only because be, uh, today it means that most Jewish creativity every year is created in Hebrew, which is an amazing thing. And it has not been the case for hundreds of years. Um, there's a few more things, but I think I'm going to leave them till next week because I don't want to take up too, uh, uh, too much of, uh, of everyone's time past the seven o'clock hour here in Israel. Um, and we'll pick up right here where we left off, the creation of a national ethos. And I think that will push us really nicely um, into um, the post-World War I days where we'll talk about how the, the ethos is, is created and is strengthened Uh, But also we start to see the roots of rather than individual or neighborly conflict, like we mentioned here very briefly, we'll start to see uh, the roots of a national conflict and we'll start to see where this um, takes shape. Um, And so alongside the Jewish development and and, uh, um, the building of uh, society and then a state, we'll also see uh, uh, Arab nationalism start to develop the desire for a state uh, and the tension that breaks out between uh, these two movements between World War One. World War II. Um, thank you all so much for your questions. If you have questions in the meantime, please pass them along to Rabbi Dreyfus. He'll send them my way. I would love to answer them. Again, I really can't recommend enough the book Israel, A History by Anita Shapira. It's an excellent work. Um, and I leaned pretty heavily on it for, uh, for my research for this session, amongst other things, but it really is one of the best um, books, in my opinion, that gives you sort of a, a collective story here. Um, and uh, Rabbi, thank you so much for having me. Um, you know, uh, I miss I miss Memphis when I'm not there, and I, I look forward to the next time I, I can get back. So, um, wishing everyone a Shavuot Tov, a wonderful week, and uh, we'll meet again here next Sunday.